Hello and welcome to the Violet Podcast. This week we discuss the controversial topic of humanitarian intervention. We discuss what it means, why the conversation around it is often so unhelpful, and how we can improve that. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts after you've listened to the episode, so please do get in contact with us either via email to contact.theviolet at gmail.com, through Twitter, our handle is at underscore theviolet underscore, or via the website. Thanks for listening. Knowing us, as with all things, it's important to start with precise definitions. A humanitarian intervention, uh, we can break it down into its two constituent parts, humanitarianism and intervention. Intervention is usually defined as military action taken by one country or a coalition of countries against or in another country. Humanitarianism is the idea that you are doing something for the purpose of protecting human rights or upholding human rights broadly. So when we put those together, we have the concept of a humanitarian intervention, a military action undertaken by a country or a group of countries, which is not designed for the self-benefit of those countries, whether that be economic or strategic, or to gain control over a certain resource or a certain area, um, but primarily for the purpose of upholding the human rights of people living in the area where the intervention is taking place. When we talk about humanitarian intervention, Usually we're talking about intervening to prevent a mass loss of life through genocide or governmental inaction uh, or some other large-scale ethnic cleansing and violence. The primary argument for humanitarian intervention is simply that of utilitarianism. More good comes out of it than it would be to not take the action. Lives are saved, people are protected, people do not die. And if you buy into the concept of universal human rights, the notion that every human is entitled to live in safety and in peace without fear of their life or uh, their property or their ethnic group being wiped out, then it makes sense that if their government cannot guarantee that, or if their government is actively infringing those rights, other countries should step in in order to safeguard them. Obviously, there is no intervention that can be classed as 100% effective or successful, uh, but there are definitely examples of interventions which have succeeded in protecting lives and stopping civilians from being murdered or horribly treated. The British intervention in Sierra Leone in 2000, Operation Palliser, comes to mind. British intervention was very successful in forcing the RUF, the rebel forces, to disarm uh, and restoring peace in the country, and Sierra Leone is now a fairly stable parliamentary democracy. And even though NATO intervention in Bosnia and Yugoslavia, as we'll discuss later, was controversial for many reasons, And in some instances, uh, the UN did not successfully protect civilians, such as in Srebrenica. That intervention was also successful in ending the war in Bosnia, leading to the Dayton Accords and uh, the end of violence or serious violence in that region. So the argument for humanitarian intervention focuses around the idea that it can uh, save lives and prevent atrocities and prevent abuse. One of the arguments against it focuses around the accusations of abuse by UN peacekeepers, um, certainly in the Democratic Republic of Congo and the Central African Republic, but in other places as well. And the notion that just because someone is wearing a blue beret, the traditional symbol of UN peacekeepers, um, they are still soldiers, they are still armed, there is still a sort of 
disparity of power between peacekeepers, peacemakers, and local populations, and that adding more troops, adding more military units to a complex and dangerous situation is potentially likely to end up with more human rights abuses than fewer. I think to broaden that point as well, um, one might argue even if it's not an intentional uh, abuse of power by peacekeepers or peacemakers, uh, adding more troops and adding more military action usually leads to unintended consequences because military action is inherently unpredictable to some degree. Uh, An example that springs to mind is during uh, NATO intervention in the Yugoslav wars, the Chinese embassy in Belgrade was bombed uh, by NATO forces allegedly accidentally killing three Chinese journalists and injuring, I think, just under 30 others. Uh, And NATO bombing of Yugoslavia in order to bring an end to the Yugoslav wars did also kill a lot of Serb citizens. I think we can say more broadly that a critique of humanitarian intervention is a practical one. It may not work. Um, And in fact, it might make the situation worse. There is this idea that violence begets further violence, and if you intervene uh, in a country and you remove a dictatorial leader uh, or you significantly shift the balance of power through intervention, you risk the creation of a power vacuum and more widely disastrous political consequences. One example that people frequently cite today, even though I think this is a simplification of what's happened there, is that the NATO intervention in Libya to stop Muammar Gaddafi massacring rebels in Benghazi led to his removal and then led to a power vacuum in Libya where you now have about four or five different factions uh, warring for control of the country, uh, including ISIS, a transitional government, General Haftar, who I think is backed by the uh, by the French and the, uh, and the rebel forces are backed by Turkey. So we might also argue that humanitarian intervention just further destabilizes the country and creates more human rights abuses rather than reducing them. Perhaps the most important argument against humanitarian intervention, though, is an ideological one, that intervention, while it might be uh, under the fig leaf of humanitarianism and of protecting people's rights and lives and livelihoods, is in fact a form of imperialism. It is in fact simply an argument or a justification for making uh, invasions usually by Western powers or by the United Nations, which is heavily influenced by uh, the richer world, the more developed countries, that it is a justification for those countries to go to war in countries where the actual uh, reason, the actual rationale for invasion is something else. Um, and the, the most common current example or contemporary example cited for this is the Iraq war. And the argument by the US uh, and the UK was that Iraq was invaded because it was potentially developing weapons of mass destruction, because Saddam Hussein was a genocidal dictator who had committed atrocities against the Kurds, against the Marsh Arabs, um, and therefore they needed to remove him for humanitarian reasons. Maybe that was part of the reason, but there were obviously other strategic concerns, uh, the ability to buy oil from Iraq absent the sanctions that had been placed on Saddam Hussein's regime, and so on. And this argument did also crop up in terms of British or Western intervention in Syria. Uh, This was raised in Parliament um, by opponents of military intervention, such as Jeremy Corbyn, saying that intervention in Syria by Britain to punish Assad or to prevent Assad from carrying out more chemical weapon attacks on his citizens 
would just be a fig leaf for Britain extending its interests in the region. So there are weighty arguments on both sides, both for and against humanitarian intervention. And this is an argument that involves a lot of passion and involves a lot of emotion in normal discussions of it for obvious reasons, because the consequences of bad intervention or of not intervening can be atrocious. And of course, history is filled with examples of times when interventions did and when interventions didn't happen um, in wars and conflicts and genocides that claimed millions and millions of lives. So this is clearly a very important uh, discussion to be having. But we feel that simply arguing whether humanitarian intervention is a good thing in its sort of theoretical whole, or a bad thing as a theoretical whole, is a wholly unconstructive and unhelpful argument, because a humanitarian intervention is an extremely complex thing. Every conflict around the world, every intervention in that conflict is different. There are different historical contexts, there are different social contexts, there are different economic and diplomatic contexts to every one. And they're extremely complicated things too. So they're all very different. And we can't simply say that they are all fundamentally good or they are all fundamentally bad. In practice, humanitarian intervention has the potential to solve the world's conflicts, to prevent a huge number of lives from being lost. But it also has the potential to create failed states, create power vacuums, and lose more lives than would otherwise have been lost. So the argument that we need to have, the discussion we need to have, shouldn't be framed as whether this is a monumental good or a fundamental bad. The discussion we should be having is, why is humanitarian intervention so difficult? What are the complexities and complications, the dangers and the pitfalls? And how can we overcome those to make sure that humanitarian intervention in the future only occurs in the right situations and in the right way to uh, minimise loss of life. So the first example of a question we might ask ourselves, rather than declaring humanitarian intervention to be always good or always illegitimate, is when is it legitimate and when is it not? How do we tell the difference between humanitarian intervention, in inverted commas, being used as a fig leaf for an invasion, uh, and a genuine attempt to... Uh, maximise human welfare? So the cornerstone of modern international relations, uh, as embedded in the UN Charter and pretty much every major international treaty since, is the concept of state sovereignty. That is, um, in nearly all circumstances, a state or a government has the right to govern its territory as it sees fit without outside intervention. And obviously, humanitarian intervention violates that principle because it involves states, other states, coalitions of states, international organisations interfering in a state's internal affairs. Now, in some circumstances, that might be warranted, as we've said, if there is a large-scale loss of life or ethnic violence or genocide uh, or ethnic cleansing. But clearly, if any singular state had the ability to decide that is happening in another state, I now have the right to intervene, we would be in very precarious territory. Because, as we said, states would use humanitarianism as a fig leaf and conduct invasions or military actions for their own benefit. So the first question we have to ask in deciding what is a legitimate intervention is which international bodies should have the right to decide whether an intervention is truly humanitarian and therefore warranted. The legal answer to this is the UN and specifically the UN Security Council. 
The UN Security Council is comprised of 15 member states, 10 on a rotating basis and 5 on a permanent basis. The five permanent members being the USA, China, Russia, the UK and France. And if the UN Security Council approves a resolution for humanitarian intervention in a country, then it is almost universally seen as legitimate. Where it is not possible to gain a consensus in the Security Council because of obstructionism from, say, Russia or China, uh, or indeed in some circumstances the USA, then it is arguable that other large international or regional organisations may also be able to legitimise intervention. For example, in the Yugoslav Wars, it was not possible to gain consensus in the Security Council and NATO separately decided uh, that intervention was required. That's a bit of a grey area because NATO is obviously not a global organisation. It represents Western Europe and North America, and so there were still accusations of imperialism. Uh, Nevertheless, if no international organisation supports an intervention, it is almost never seen as truly humanitarian. A good example would be the Iraq War, uh, where the USA tried to get a resolution passed in the Security Council, failed, tried to get a resolution passed in NATO, also failed because of French and German opposition, and then decided anyway to intervene in Iraq alongside the UK, Poland, for some reason, and Australia. Um, And that would not be seen as a legitimate intervention. Another form of intervention that is generally seen as legitimate is if there is a rebel group or insurrection uh, that rises and invades a country, the government is unable to uh, deal with that insurrection and so calls on its allies for help. The classic uh, current example of this would be French military action in Mali, which is not uh, something that was unilaterally decided by the French. They were invited to by the Malian government to help the Malian government deal with Tuareg rebels. The big problem and the, the controversial cases arise when the armed force that has started the conflict and that is brutalizing civilians is the government itself. Uh, in that sense, Syria is an interesting example because the Syrian government of Bashar al-Assad effectively invited the Russian and the Iranian militaries into Syria to help crush rebel forces, um, which evolved from peaceful protests against his dictatorial rule. Uh, And in that sense, we wouldn't call Russian and Iranian intervention humanitarian. Uh, Again, it comes back to that central point of who has to legitimise something for it to be classed as humanitarian. A final aspect worth exploring in terms of legitimacy of intervention is the threshold for intervention to happen. Again, it's generally accepted this has to be decided by the UN or another large uh, international organisation. But the question remains, what should the standard be for intervention to take place? Now, as we said previously, humanitarian intervention is largely based around a concept of human rights. And so the worst violations of the most fundamental rights, such as those to life and freedom from torture and so on, are usually seen as a legitimate trigger for intervention. On the other hand, most people would, I think, not say that breaching the right to an education or the right to healthcare uh, would be be grounds for intervention. uh, And the line is therefore generally accepted to be somewhere on the upper end of the scale. However, even if we do agree that uh, intervention should only happen in the case of a large-scale loss of life, the question remains can intervention be justified as legitimate if it happens preemptively in order to prevent the violence from happening where there are signs it is about to take place? 
or can it only be legitimate once violence has already started and then states step in to retroactively solve that violence and return the country to peace? So overall, there is no hard and fast line over what makes a legitimate intervention and what doesn't. Really, as with all things in international politics and international diplomacy, what is legitimate and what is acceptable is merely what is popular in the largest amount of the world and amongst the largest number of uh, governments and leaders. So when we're thinking about humanitarian intervention, to repeat what we said at the beginning, it's important not to look at this in black and white terms. It's important not to delineate a line, a very clear line between what is acceptable and what's not not acceptable. It's important not to consider all humanitarian intervention illegitimate or all invasions under the uh, umbrella of humanitarian intervention as legitimate, but to think hard and fast about each individual case on its own merits. The next problem to discuss when it comes to humanitarian intervention is something we mentioned earlier, which is the fact that Once a conflict has started, once violence has started, once lives are being lost, it is then much more difficult and much more complex to end uh, that conflict. And it's also partly a failure already. The idea of peacekeeping is to prevent lives from being lost. And the ideal world from a peacekeeping point of view is one in which no lives are lost to violence, not one in which millions of lives are lost to violence, but then avenged afterwards. So, in that sense, peacekeeping fails if it does if conflict breaks out in the first place. But to link this back to our earlier discussion of legitimacy, it is much more difficult to declare an intervention as legitimate before violence has actually started. And a good illustration of this is the Rwandan genocide uh, in 1994, where in the build-up to the actual occurrence of genocide, it was absolutely clear to any observer that ethnic tensions were mounting dangerously in the country, not as a result of some ancient ethnic hatred, but as a result of racist propaganda being pumped out by the government on a regular basis. And there was clearly uh, the organisation and the structure in place for large-scale ethnic violence and genocide to take place. However, the UN did not deploy sufficient forces to Rwanda uh, in order to preemptively peacekeep in the region and to prevent violence breaking out in the first place. Therefore, when violence actually did break out, the UN was caught wrong-footed, it was unable to intervene decisively or quickly enough to prevent that violence. And perhaps one of the fundamental reasons that the UN did not commit sufficient forces to Rwanda in order to preempt the violence is because the USA, then under the presidency of Bill Clinton, did not yet see it as a serious issue or a serious enough issue that they could sell it to the American public as a necessary intervention. And the Rwandan genocide also serves to show how quickly um, situations can escalate when that sort of tinderbox scenario is already set up, because it famously only lasted for roughly 100 days, and yet half a million lives were lost. But whilst a lack of preemptive action is clearly problematic, preemptive action can be as well. And this gets to the heart of one of the reasons why uh, deciding when and how to intervene on humanitarian grounds is so difficult. And that's because we have no counterfactual. Um, A counterfactual, for those who haven't read my article on the website, if you haven't, go and check it out, um, is the thing that would have happened otherwise. So in a scientific experiment, if you want to know if... Uh, say a certain medicine works, you have a control group to whom you 
don't give that medicine, but keep them in exactly the same conditions. And you compare the difference between the people who are only given the control and the people who are given the actual drug. When it comes to history, when it comes to politics, we don't have counterfactuals. So we might have a humanitarian intervention that seems not to work, and lots of lives continue to be lost after the intervention, the conflict continues. But in the world in which that intervention didn't happen many, many more lives were lost. And actually, compared to what would have happened otherwise, that intervention was a success. But the opposite can be the case as well. An intervention might occur, and the um, result seems to be relatively successful, but actually nothing was going to happen, and the intervention has caused more conflict than would otherwise have occurred. So preemptive uh, intervention has the problem that no one can see the future, no one can know the counterfactual, and we cannot know for sure whether violence is going to occur. So there is, for an example, an argument that although intervention in Syria against the government is now very difficult because of Russian involvement, it should have taken place right at the start of the democratic Syrian revolution against the Saud if those rebels, if those protesters were supported uh, when they were peacefully protesting and Assad began to gun them down, then the situation would not have escalated to the point where he was using chemical weapons against rebel-held towns like Aleppo, for example. The Syria case serves to illustrate another difficulty with conducting successful interventions, in that when we think of wars, we usually think of... um, you know, very neat conflicts between two armies which are dressed in different colours and have distinct patterns of leadership and you know who both sides are and you can pick a side that you want to support. And the case is that most wars nowadays are not like that. Uh, Most wars are multifaceted. The government may be a participant in the war, but then you have a whole range of different other groups, some funded or supported by other states, uh, some purely internal to the state itself. And the difficulty in intervention is that there isn't a good guy to side with. We don't have simple good guy, bad guy conflicts where you support the good guy and you kill the bad guy. Uh, You sometimes have several bad guys of varying shades. And that means that it's very difficult when intervening to not accidentally create greater harm by allowing another group with reprehensible aims to gain control within a country. In the case of Syria, for example... ISIS was one of the groups opposing Assad. That doesn't mean that intervention in Syria means supporting ISIS, but it is very easy to see how that could spiral out of control and is probably one of the reasons that Western intervention in Syria didn't take place against the Assad government and was rather muted. And this hammers home the point that black and white thinking about humanitarian intervention is incredibly dangerous. It's natural Uh, upsettingly natural to think of the world in Disney terms of heroes and villains, but the real world is not like that. And especially when we're talking about conflicts, by definition, both sides of a conflict are murderers. In any armed conflict or any war, people on both sides have killed lots of people on the other side. And if we go into conflicts looking for the good guy, looking for the heroes to support and the villains to fight against, uh, we end up either not intervening at all, or uh, throwing away behind and supporting really problematic regimes or groups. And it's worth saying that just because two sides of a conflict are both incredibly problematic, both committing atrocities, um, 
and, and both not organisations that we'd like to be associated with, that in itself is not an argument against intervention because ordinary people are still getting harmed. Wars and conflicts do not usually include everyone in a country, everyone in an area. They tend to be waged by particular political groups against each other, and the ordinary people who live in a particular place are the victims, regardless of which side of the conflict uh, is winning, and regardless of which side is supported by whom on the outside. So even in the cases like uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, or the Central African Republic, where there are many, many, many different sides, all fighting for different reasons, none of whom are particularly sort of honourable or upstanding or organisations that we'd like to be associated with. It's in those cases that intervention is at its most critical because those are the ones that are most dangerous for the ordinary people on the ground who are going to get hurt. The counter-argument to that, of course, and again the reason why intervention is such a tricky theoretical thing, is that if a country or a group of countries decides to intervene in a conflict where no one in that conflict has requested their assistance, then it makes it easier to portray that intervention as imperialist or in the self-interest of the coalition of invading or intervening countries. So again, a counterfactual example, which where intervention didn't happen in the wake of Mohammed Ahmadinejad's second presidential victory in, uh, in Iran in the early 2010s, uh, there was massive violence perpetrated by the government against protesters. And if the USA or Western countries had decided to intervene, that would broadly have been seen as illegitimate, even if they intervened in support of the protesters, because whilst the protesters didn't like Ahmadinejad's government, they also didn't like the USA and didn't want the USA coming anywhere near the country. So when we think about intervention and whether someone has to be invited in to make it legitimate... Uh, we run into many difficulties. And this leads us on to a a subtly different point about the difficulties of humanitarian intervention, which is that intervention, regardless of whether there is a particular government or group that has uh, invited or legitimised this intervention, if it is truly humanitarian intervention, it is done on behalf of ordinary people in whatever place we're intervening in. And those people uh, may well not have explicitly consented to the intervention themselves they may not have invited the intervention themselves and they also in a lot of these countries have no reason to believe that anyone in a military uniform holding a rifle has their best interests at heart Uh, especially in the most sort of damaged uh, failed parts of the world where governments are extraordinarily predatory and the army spends a lot of time uh, abusing and extorting the local population as do rebel groups places such as the Democratic Republic of Congo, having more uh, armed men coming into the situation is very difficult to persuade uh, local people that that is to their benefit. And if that persuasion doesn't happen, then, again, legitimacy of the intervention is lost, but also it begins to defeat its own purpose. Yeah, and interventions are generally carried out by Western countries, and Western armed forces not because they're white, but because they're generally more economically advanced countries, are better funded, better equipped, better trained, uh, and better disciplined, and are more able to execute interventions. But at the same time, where interventions are happening in non-Western countries or non-Western parts of the world, as we said, it becomes much more difficult to portray them or paint them as legitimate actors rather than as exterior threats. 
um, one specific example and one specific country actually uh, would be Israel's non-participation in the Kuwait intervention or the Gulf War in the early 90s. Uh, so when Saddam Hussein attacked Kuwait uh, and Kuwait was to be to be liberated uh, from Iraq, Israel deliberately was told not to participate in the coalition against Iraq by the USA for fear that it would make the whole intervention seem illegitimate uh, to the Arab states of the region. And there have also been problems with interventions being uh, unwieldy and ineffective and the troops on the ground being very difficult to control and manoeuvre quickly to the right places and therefore unable to respond to uh, outbreaks of violence where they are required simply because in the name of legitimacy UN missions have often um, been comprised of troops from 30, 40 or 50 different countries which, who speak different languages, who have different training, who use different equipment, and organising all of those together into one coherent force is much, much more difficult than if all of those troops were provided by one particular government. So in many ways, we're in the horrible situation of facing a trade-off between the legitimacy of an intervention and the efficiency of an intervention. Um, the efficiency-legitimacy trade-off also feeds into something uh, that we would call the cornered badger problem, uh, but could also be described by, by a lot of other names, uh, like perverse incentives or, or the cobra effect. Uh, and effectively, if an intervention is carried out for humanitarian reasons and it has broad legitimacy and everyone supports it and everyone agrees that a dictator has done something awful and needs to be removed, it is not necessarily the most efficient way to bring an end to violence in that country for the reason that a dictator facing humanitarian intervention uh, and facing an invasion of their country by outside forces may simply just fight harder uh, and fight dirtier and commit more atrocities in a bid to retain power because they know that if they were to be removed, they would likely be imprisoned for life or executed, as was the case for Saddam Hussein in Iraq, who was put on trial after being captured in Tikrit by American forces uh, and then hanged or Gaddafi, who was not uh, put on trial, but was tortured and executed by rebels after NATO intervention in Libya toppled his regime. Uh, and is probably the reason that Assad is so keen to hang on to power in Syria at this point. If any intervention were to happen, he would continue fighting because he knows at this point losing that civil war would mean his execution. An example of the opposite uh, choice that we face, though, is in Colombia, where the FARC a communist rebel group, uh, agreed to peace with the Colombian government on the terms that the leaders of the group were given an amnesty and were free to turn their uh, rebel group into a political party and take part in elections in the country. This agreement was reached between the government and the FARC, and so the leaders of that rebel group, which has a history of drug trafficking and human trafficking and murder and all sorts of awful things are now legitimised uh, politicians in Colombia, and clearly this is not a very popular decision and has um, somewhat damaged the standing or the reputation of the Colombian government for a lot of Colombians. However, it has been effective in bringing about peace between the Colombian government and this particular rebel group. I should say there are other rebel groups in Colombia which are continuing to fight, uh, but this particular rebel group has now laid down its arms. And therefore, the efficiency-legitimacy trade-off is that 
the most efficient way to achieve peace in some scenarios, I must stress not all, uh, is to negotiate with enemy forces who have committed terrible atrocities. But this may not be seen as legitimate or just, or it may be seen as rewarding the fruits of violence and atrocity. So once again, this represents a reason for us not to think about these issues in black and white terms. If we always negotiate, uh, if we always forgive the leaders of horrific governments or horrific rebel groups, we run the risk of encouraging more of them to take up arms to uh, further whatever their particular agenda is. But if we never do that, we force these people to fight until the end. Uh, We force them to think of what happened to Saddam Hussein and Gaddafi uh, and to fight for their very existence and their very survival, which means that those conflicts become more protracted and more people lose their lives as a result. Perhaps the most enduring difficulty with humanitarian interventions is how to create the circumstances such that humanitarian interventions are no longer necessary in a country or a region. It is relatively simple to create peace in the short term uh, within a country or a region to disarm warring factions and impose an unstable peace simply by flooding the region uh, with intervening troops and forcibly maintaining order and forcibly preventing violence from taking place against civilians. The difficulty is, once those troops leave, there might simply be a reversion to violence, um, and then again you have the need for intervention. It is much more difficult, therefore, to build peace in the long term than it is to impose it in the short term. Often that requires the construction of states from a ground-up level, in areas where the state has completely fractured and fallen apart and needs to be rebuilt such as the Central African Republic or Somalia or many other examples of failed states. An example that illustrates this quite nicely is the Iraq War. Now, as we mentioned earlier, seeing the Iraq War as a humanitarian intervention is a stretch, but it serves nicely to show that short-term goals are often very easy to effect, but long-term peace is very difficult to build, because the war against Saddam Hussein and Saddam Hussein's army was actually very short relatively successful and relatively efficient. And I think it was about three weeks and I one of my earliest political memories is actually George Bush standing on the on the deck of a warship docked in the, the, the Persian Gulf with a huge banner behind him saying Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished, I remember that. That's a, it's an iconic faux pas. <laughs> yes, iconic photo. Um, but after that, obviously the invasion, whether it caused uh, the the power vacuum that now exists in Iraq, or whether it, it was merely something that happened alongside it, is another debate. But nevertheless, establishing a lasting peace in Iraq proved to be far, far more difficult, especially because people continued to fight. And so another fallacy that we need to deal with is something that we mentioned earlier, that warfare is not just something that happens between two neatly organized groups of armies who wear different colors fight each other on a battlefield and it's all over in sort of half an hour 45 minutes conflicts often involve large numbers of guerrilla troops or combatants who work in secret um, assassinations bombings suicide bombings etc and putting an end to all forms of violence rather than just pitched battle is much much more difficult Um, One of the reasons that's the case is, especially in urban guerrilla warfare, it's almost impossible to detect who are, well, who are combatants, as we've said, and therefore it's almost impossible to determine who to target. Uh, There are then two broad options. 
either you have a ridiculous number of troops so you can conduct close surveillance of every individual and you can detect who the combatants are. Uh, obviously, that's firstly very unpopular with people and will probably lead to retaliations and a lack of success for the intervention. And secondly, it's massively resource intensive and expensive. Or secondly, you take a very broad brush approach and anyone who is loosely or potentially associated with a combatant, you target and you treat as a combatant. Again, that's completely illegal via international law um, and it is more likely to increase resistance to the intervention than create support for it. It's worth saying as well that that process is the genesis of almost all genocides that there will be a political group, a rebel group, that arms against a government, arms against uh, the powers that be, the government fails to identify who are part of this group and then identifies their broader ethnic or religious group or whatever it is uh, with that rebel group and kills everyone from that ethnic group so as to guarantee destruction of that political group within it. And even if we don't reach the point of genocide, and I have to stress what I'm about to say is a simplification of a very complex process, uh, the exclusion of the Ba'ath Party from Iraqi politics after Saddam Hussein's removal, um, he was the leader of the Ba'ath Party, led to the exclusion of Sunni Muslims from Iraqi politics because Saddam was a Sunni Muslim and therefore most Sunni Muslims had gravitated towards his party. And it was partially the exclusion of the Ba'ath Party from Iraqi politics which led to the insurgency against US occupation and very indirectly in the long run led to the creation of ISIS uh, as a magnet for these disaffected groups who felt that US occupation and extending Iranian influence had cut them out of the levers of power. It may well be the case that short-term ceasefires created by um, peacekeeping or peacemaking organisations and um, interventions don't translate into lasting peace because the fighting continues in a different format. But it may also be the case that the conditions that lead to that conflict exist well before the conflict and are persistent and exist after the peacekeeping um, process as well. And this is especially notable in what we might call failed states, areas where the government has long failed to hold any sort of power or any sort of control, lawless regions where rebel groups are free to roam around and to exploit the local population and the source of the conflict is the lack of a functioning state. The examples I'm thinking of here are Somalia in the 1990s, Democratic Republic of Congo at the moment, Central African Republic at the moment. And in those situations, whilst, as we said earlier, putting troops on the ground in the short term can prevent that fighting and prevent that violence, the context that provides the incentives for violence remains unless a functioning state can be created. That leads to two closely related difficulties. Um, so we have said that interventions are usually carried out by Western governments or Western states, and therefore it is their responsibility uh, for reconstructing the, the post-war peace uh, to create the durable foundations for a lack of violence in the future. Because interventions are usually carried out by Western states and because Western states are usually democracies, it is very difficult to persuade voters in Western countries that they should effectively foot the bill for the reconstruction of another state. At the best of times, it is difficult to persuade voters that they should pay more taxes or they should contribute towards something which is 
for the benefit of people in their own country, it's even more difficult to convince them they should pay for something in another part of the world. For that reason, we often have the initial stage of the intervention where troops are deployed, a short-term fragile peace is established, and potentially a power vacuum is created. But we often then fail to have a long-term commitment to reconstructing that country, which leads to what we might call failed interventions or badly done interventions uh, in which there is a short-term success and a long-term failure because there is not the political will to maintain that project in the long run. So we run the risk of leaving after a peacekeeping intervention without having established a functioning state and returning the country back to the uh, back to the situation in which it was and back to a situation of violence. But creating states is also problematic, mostly because, as we've said, it's usually Western countries that are involved in these interventions, that run these interventions, and therefore it's usually Western countries that are involved in that state creation process afterwards, setting up a functioning government. And that leads to accusations of imperialism and accusations that humanitarian intervention is not done on the grounds of humanitarianism and on the grounds of defending the people of a particular place against violence, but as a fig leaf for rebuilding and remodeling non-Western countries in a Western image. And not just the Western image in the sense of following similar political and cultural values, but in the sense of economically restructuring the country in such a way that Western countries can take advantage of uneven trading relationships. Uh, We often hear the argument that America went into Iraq for the oil, not literally stealing it and taking it away with them, but in order to open up Iraqi oil fields to American companies, or the argument that America is in Afghanistan because there are trillions of of dollars of minerals below the surface. And... Neither of those things are true. The economics of why they're not true is another podcast, uh, but neither of those things are true. But there are enough people that believe those things are true to have seriously tainted humanitarian intervention as an idea. And as we've said throughout this podcast, the legitimacy of intervention is massively important and the way it's viewed is massively important. So even though those things are not true, invading a minor oil producer is in no way a good idea if you want to lower oil prices. Um, But if enough people see any military intervention by Western countries as inherently wrong and as inherently uh, colonialist or imperialist, then it prevents legitimate humanitarian intervention from functioning and it allows more violence to continue around the world that could be stopped. So to wrap up a sprawling and very lengthy theoretical conversation, it's worth us concluding and pointing out how we think intervention should work or how it should be changed going forwards. And the first thing I would say is that we need to reframe the idea of intervention and not just think about intervening in the short term to prevent violence once it has started, but to preemptively prevent violence from happening in the first place by creating the conditions for peace. Uh, And statistically, empirically, violence is very, very strongly negatively correlated with income, i.e. the higher the income of an area, the less the incidences or the fewer the incidences of violence. And the mechanisms for that are a whole other thing, but one brief reason is that People often join rebel groups or participate in um, violent organisations because they have no other alternatives uh, or economic possibilities. 
So what we need to think about is not just intervening militarily in the short term, even though that is sometimes necessary. We need to think about preemptive peacekeeping by development assistance and building up countries so that they are economically stable and prosperous and so that there is less chance of violence happening, which then needs to be retroactively dealt with through military interventions. Absolutely. And it is something that is being increasingly realised by the development community, but unfortunately not so much by governments, that economic development in poor countries is massively important for the rest of the world as well as for humanitarian grounds for those people. It kills several birds with one stone because not only do you raise their living standards, you also tend to have knock-on effects on other countries around their uh, region and as incomes rise, the prevalence of things like violence does fall away. And so we can prevent these deaths from happening in the first place. We can prevent the need for military intervention with more economic intervention. The other thing that I would say here is that when it comes to state building and state creation in places like the DRC, like the CAR, where preemptive economic development style intervention uh, is not possible. It's too late. Those places have already fallen to chaos and violence. Intervention is necessary to protect the people uh, of those countries and a state creation system, a state creation process is necessary to allow those places to develop into the future and to prevent future violence. And when we're looking at that state creation process, what we need to do is be able to distinguish between the idiosyncrasies of sort of Western political culture and the hard and fast rules of political science of what makes a well-run country and distinguishing between things like a particular electoral system that might have the the quirks of the British system or the French system or whatever and the fundamental idea of democracy to distinguish between the idiosyncrasies and, and um nooks and crannies, really, of British common law and the fundamental idea of rule of law itself. And so in telling the difference between those, we need to educate ourselves on what those things are, how those political processes work, what the key ingredients of functioning states are, so that we don't misunderstand those key ingredients of functioning states as being Western imperialism, quote-unquote. So this has obviously been a massively complex discussion with so many different elements and we've thrown up a lot of questions which we haven't necessarily answered objectively, partially because we don't think there are objective answers to be had. We'd love to hear your thoughts though. There are obviously loads of crises in the world today where humanitarian intervention is being discussed in Myanmar, for example, in Yemen, in Syria, uh, and we'd love to hear your thoughts about whether you think intervention is warranted in those circumstances and under what conditions. If you have anything that you'd like to ask us, anything to say, you can get in touch with us at contact.theviolet at gmail.com. That's our email address. You can find us on Twitter with our handle at underscore theviolet underscore, or you can visit our website, theviolet.net. Thanks for listening, and we hope to have you with us again soon.